1: It's a tremendous pleasure for me to be able to address you, and I'm very grateful for uh, the invitation. Uh, What I'm going to talk to you today about is a very small piece of a big, sweeping project that I'm working on in the history of egalitarianism, in which I'm investigating egalitarian thought, as in close interaction, with a history of a series of experiments in egalitarian living uh, from which we can draw some lessons. So this talk is going to be focused on some failed experiments. uh, But you know, we always learn from our mistakes. (laughs) So that will be the theme of the lecture today. Um, But first, I just want to talk about what is an egalitarian society. Egalitarianism has a negative aim, to eliminate or tame social hierarchy. What's social hierarchy? It consists in durable group inequality that's sustained by systematic laws, norms, and habits. I want to stress that. There are innumerable idiosyncratic or random inequalities that are not of concern. to egalitarian social movements to egalitarianism as I'm understanding it. The fact that one was born with an irascible temperament is irrelevant because it has no tendency to create or sustain social hierarchy. The fact that you might have landed a job because your boss just happened to like the color of jacket you were wearing, has no tendency whatsoever to perpetuate, produce, or sustain systematic group-based inequality. And consequently, although you got the job on the basis of an irrelevant feature, uh, because it's purely idiosyncratic, it's of no particular concern. The positive goal of egalitarianism is to replace social hierarchy with a society of equals. And the topic of this lecture is about changing visions of what the society of equals would look like. In order to understand that, we have to get clear on three types of social hierarchy or three dimensions of social hierarchy. One is hierarchies of domination and subordination classically represented In the relation of master to slave, but certainly not only there. The relation of monarch to subject, landlord to serf, creditor to debt peon, patriarchal husband to wife. There are many, many such relations of domination and subordination. Secondly, We have relations of esteem and stigma. Uh, Here's a really great illustration of this from 1740. Who has to lick whose ass? Right? Who, who, right? Some people get honored and other people, they're just the lowly, despicable ass lickers. Thirdly, we have inequalities of standing. These are cases in which some people count in the deliberations and conduct of others. Other people have to pay attention to their interests and perspectives. And by contrast, you have all the no counts here in the illustration, right? These poor people who are just filling uh, uh, Louis Philippe I's uh, gigantic stomach with more and more goods. So concerns about distributive justice are largely concerns about standing, but inequalities of standing also encompass concerns of epistemic injustice, right? Whose perspectives, whose testimony counts? How much weight uh, do do people's uh, beliefs have when they're engaged in discussions with others about what to believe? So now I want to introduce to you the original egalitarian motive. That is, why is it that throughout the history of society, people have kept on coming back to the idea that we should create a society of equals? What's moving people? And here I'm going to draw on the very profound work of Christopher Baum. He's a primatologist and anthropologist. A wonderful work I cannot recommend too strongly, Hierarchy in the Forest. Bohm offers what he calls an ambivalence model of egalitarian behavior among despotic species. If you look from a biological point of view, human beings are a despotic species. What that means is that we create hierarchies, just like all the other great apes, there's alpha chimps and beta chimps and so forth, and human beings create hierarchies as well. This is unlike uh, uh, other kinds of species, uh, which don't do that, which are not despotic. So we know that there are I- in egalitarian impulses in us. <clears throat> However, a puzzling thing about the human species is uh, we all originated from hunter-gatherer bands, from nomadic hunter-gatherer bands, all human beings descended from this kind of social group. And the anthropologists tell us that nomadic hunter-gatherer bands are uniformly egalitarian. So that's pretty interesting. It also shows that although we have dispositions (coughs) to hierarchy, we also have dispositions to equality, and under the conditions in which our ancestors, our original ancestors lived, (coughs) we achieved equality a society of equals. So what, it, what enabled that? Well, <coughs> Bohm hypothesizes, he gives some excellent empirical evidence for the claim that the original egalitarian impulse is resentment of subordination. We don't like being dominated by other people. We want to be our own bosses. We don't like taking orders from other people. Okay. <coughs> And Bohm postulates that uh, in the conditions under which humans evolved, uh, we all, of course, at that time, depended on each other very strongly to live. We had to engage in cooperative living in order to survive. But we didn't want that mode of social being to be ruled by some alpha. And so our hunter-gatherer ancestors established an original social contract in which all the politically active adults agreed to jointly enforce equality for the sake of personal autonomy. And what that enforcement of equality amounted to was keeping control of bullies. right, And narcissists, too. Because uh, it turns out that people who like to boast a lot like to convert higher esteem into authority. And so, egalitarianism is um, is basically about (coughs) keeping the bullies and narcissists among us under control so that each of us then can be our own bosses and live according to our our own judgments. There's a very important lesson to be learned from this, and that is that the motive underlying the egalitarian social contract is deeply individualistic. Each of us want our personal autonomy for ourselves. Okay, And it's that theme of individualism I want you to keep in mind. as as we consider some of these changing visions of egalitarian society and why they failed. So it's also worth thinking about the original inegalitarian motive, and here I'm drawn to another wonderful book I cannot recommend too strongly by some colleagues of mine uh, at University of Michigan, Kent Flannery and Joyce Marcus who wrote this magnificent book called The Creation of Inequality. It's a joint project of anthropology and archeology span showing how uh, inegalitarian social forms emerged out of our original egalitarian starting point. And they give excellent evidence that the first form of inequality to break out uh, was a steam inequality. Okay, and we can even see this in tribal societies, which are still recognizably uh, uh, egalitarian societies. They're perfect. They exhibit perfect equality of opportunity. People gain esteem through their own individual merits alone. There's no inherited inequality of esteem just because you're. Father or mother earned high honors doesn't give you any entitlement whatsoever to extra attention or esteem. You have to earn it all entirely on your own. However, individuals do. Some of them show through superior uh, uh, trading, uh, through superior mastery of ritual, through superior ability to endure suffering and pain, through uh, superior mastery of medicine, uh, uh, warfare, other things, other skills that are good for the community, can earn unequal esteem. And it turns out, just as the hunter-gatherers have always suspected, that once some people earn higher esteem, they wanna convert that into unequal authority and unequal property. And once they manage to do that, you end up with what is known by the anthropologists as rank society, in which these inequalities get inherited. That is, parents, once establishing a superior position, get to pass that superiority on to their kids. And then you start having recognizable, sustained, group-based inequality based on lines of descent. Turns out then that Rousseau was right. (laughs) Okay, Rousseau postulated in his famous discourse on the origins of inequality that esteemed competition uh, was the source of all other inequality, and now it looks like that seems to be probably true. And hence, to go back to the wisdom of our hunter-gatherer ancestors, the key to securing a society of equals has to be to somehow to keep the bullies and the narcissists uh, within bounds uh, so they don't dominate us. Okay, so now I just wanna talk a little bit about some different visions of egalitarian society and we can basically order them by the scale of the society. So hunter-gatherer bands are very small. You know, there are a few dozen people Tribal society is a bit larger in the order of hundreds uh, of people. Uh, And so we can look at the modern egalitarian models uh, and think about them from a scale point of view in terms of sort of the fundamental unit, you might say, of society. And we're going to start off Uh, thinking about individualist free market, broadly libertarian visions. Here, the fundamental unit is the individual or maybe the nuclear family. Uh, And this characterizes 18th century liberals, commercial republicans, anarchist capitalists, It's a kind of 17th and 18th century uh, egalitarian vision uh, that I find very interesting. And one of the things I wanna stress here is that once we understand the origins of libertarianism, we'll see that it's a deeply egalitarian picture at its origins.
0: <clears throat>
1: Secondly, we could think of the fundamental unit as maybe the commune, a very small scale, but people living in larger groups than like just the lone individual or the nuclear family. Okay, and this is the vision we saw with utopian socialists, anarchist communists, <laughs> all kinds of groups. <clears throat> that I'll be looking at shortly. <clears> then <throat> we'll be looking at large-scale collectivism. Here, fundamentally, the picture is some kind of state communism, where the fundamental unity is the whole society, run centrally by the state, all under unified direction from the top. And fourth, I won't be talking about this... <laughs> Uh, But there are all kinds of mixed-scale systems (coughs) that egalitarians think about where you have lots of different uh, uh, organizational forms at different scales that somehow had to mesh together, have to mesh together to create a society of equals. Ultimately, I think that's really uh, where egalitarian thinking has had to end up because the first three models didn't succeed in achieving a society of equals. And here we get different visions here, but I'm actually not going to be talking about vision four, even though I think that's where the action is today. What I'm interested in today is thinking about what lessons we can draw from the failure of the first three visions to actually satisfy the egalitarian impulse uh, uh, that lies at the origin of egalitarian social movements. So first let's think about individualist free market broadly libertarian pictures. And I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the political economy of egalitarianism from about the mid-17th century to the early 19th century. According to these theorists, hierarchy was the product of corruption. And corruption amounted to various state-granted privileges that were accorded to the rich and powerful. Class privileges like the existence of a House of Lords. They have their own house of representation. They're immune from lawsuits from commoners, things like that. Monopolies of land, the aristocrats in England own virtually all the land in England. Uh, parliament would give monopolies to manufacturers, monopolies on trade and particular goods and so forth. The state would also hand out public offices, which were really just, you know, no-show jobs that would carry a nice salary. Uh, All kinds of involuntary labor systems, slavery, apprenticeship, debt peonage, just tons and tons, you know, serfdom, all kinds of involuntary labor systems. These were also products of the law and all kinds of crazy financial schemes, as well as oppressive taxation, which was mainly used to enrich the rich and oppress the poor. So on this view, hierarchy was the product of corrupt state grants of privilege to useless aristocrats, conspiring manufacturers, manipulative financiers, parasitic government officials, and so forth. You see this theme coming again and again, uh, particularly in Adam Smith. Uh, Smith is definitely an egalitarian in this tradition. And here I want to stress what Smith himself saw as the great virtue of the rise of commercial society, of market society. Okay? Most of us today, if you, you know, talk to economists, they'll talk about, oh, it's efficiency, you know, economic growth and so forth, no doubt Smith extolled market society for its efficiency and promotion of economic growth. However, those two virtues of market society were instrumental to something far more profound. The liberation of individuals from servile dependency upon their superiors. That's what Smith himself identified as by far the most important effects of the rise of market society and the reason why he thought it was so important to promote market society. (coughs) What the rise of market society did was take people who started off as servants and retainers and tenants at will who had to suck up to their landlord. and turn them into independent artisans and long-term leaseholders and yeoman farmers who didn't have to answer to a superior's order because they were self-employed. They were their own boss, clearly an expression of the egalitarian motive. Smith argues that this happens because commercial society motivated the lords to trade authority for empty vanity. (laughs) This is one of my favorite passages in The the Wealth of Nations. All for ourselves and nothing for other people seems in every age of the world to have been the vile maxim of the masters of mankind. (laughs) But commercial society produced another possibility. Before the rise of commerce and trade, The lords had nothing else to do with their massive wealth than to share it out among their retainers, their servants, their serfs, their subordinates. And so they shared their property, but got subordination in return. There's always a price for what Smith called hospitality. Okay? (laughs) Uh... Right? It meant that then, in return for getting your sustenance from the Lord, you would have to obey his orders and bow and scrape before him. <clears throat> However, the rise of commercial society gave these greedy lords another way to spend their money than by sharing it out among their dependent serfs, tenants, and retainers. For a pair of diamond buckles, perhaps, or for something as frivolous and useless, they exchanged the maintenance of a thousand men for a year, and with it, the whole weight and authority which it could give them. Right? Instead of spending it on retainers, they keep it for themselves and spend it on a pair of diamond buckles. Thus, for the gratification of the most childish, the meanest, and the most sordid of all vanities, they gradually bartered their whole power and authority. Okay. The causal story here is these vain, childish lords, with the rise of commerce, now they can spend all their income on themselves. But somebody has to be out there manufacturing the diamond buckles and the fancy ball gowns and all the other fancy stuff that they're now filling their houses with. Who are those people? Well, they're going to be independent artisans. He who has many masters has none, right? The artisans have many customers. They're not beholden into just one lord. They have some real independence. Similarly, on Smith's view, uh, uh, as people left the farms and went to the cities to become manufacturers and traders and so forth, the landlords wanted to raise rents on the farmers who remained. The farmers had a certain amount of bargaining power as a result of the rise of commercial society. And they said, look, if you wanna raise rents, uh, you gotta give us a longer term lease, long enough so that then they can invest in improving the property and improving their productivity and so forth. And hence the rise of a fairly independent farmer class as opposed to the servile subordinate peasants uh, uh, of before. This is a recognizably egalitarian society. It is true that the landlords get to indulge their vanity, so you have esteem steam equality. However, they gave up relations of domination and subordination to achieve that. Okay? So that's a big plus. And in addition, these vanities are pretty empty and childish. All you need to do is to cultivate good stoic virtue, and then you can look down your noses at these lords and despise them for their absurd and degraded system of selfish values. Okay. Another key aspect of this story is that, remember, Smith, of course, is the great advocate of free trade. He sees the rise of commercial society, but commercial society in his day was not yet free trade. But Smith predicted that if we actually abolished all the monopolies, then we'd have even more liberating and egalitarian effects. Okay, so Smith's political agenda is, you got to abolish primogenitor and entail. Okay, those are the laws of inheritance that forbade the breaking up of the great lord's estates. Okay, remember the lords are stupid. They're not efficient farmers. They can't be bothered to pay attention to efficient production. The people who do that are the yeoman farmers. So, in a free market, when they, when they can't keep their estates intact, you know, you're gonna, you know, some worthless son of an aristocrat is gonna get into gambling debts, okay? And he's gonna now have to sell off some of his land, it'll break up the estates, bring in a free market, and the inheritors of the land will be the most efficient producers, namely independent yeoman farmers, okay? you got to abolish slavery and apprenticeship. Smith was one of the great anti-slavery political theorists. He also argued against apprenticeship. Apprenticeship was a very oppressive system of labor. These you know young, these youth would have to work for free for years and years under the oppressive rule of some master. It's really awful. He thought there was no need for that. <coughs> You abolish guilds, monopolies, corporations, by the way, he has a one that Wealth of Nations contains a long disposition on how corporations are basically a scheme to steal money from investors uh, so that the people running the corporation can just line their own pockets. He also has an extended discussion of why you don't need the corporate form to do practically anything of use Except for a few tiny routine aspects of the economy. So yeah, you need to these vast agglomerations of capital to create a canal. Okay. But then once the canal is built, it's a completely routine operation. It doesn't require any kind of entrepreneurial skill and so forth. So tolerate corporations for a few things like this. For the most part though, you don't really need them. So Smith's political economy is premised on the following ideas. One is that there's minimal returns to scale. <clears throat> Secondly, uh, the picture is a free market society, you're gonna have massive competition because you have multiple producers once you abolish the monopolies. Perfect competition minimizes profits. And Smith thought it would effectively end the frontier class the people who are idle just living off their property income everybody would have to work for a living and he pointed to the netherlands as an example of this the third idea that smith had was that efficiency of production was fundamentally a matter of labor incentives okay the more the workers the producers the greater a percentage income that they get to keep for themselves, the stronger their incentive to work, and consequently the most efficient unit of production will be the sole proprietorship, right, where the worker gets to keep 100% of the fruits of their labor, and you can see his critique of sharecropping, slavery, all forms of involuntary servitude as coming out of that And consequently, because free markets allocate uh, resources to the most efficient producer, and the most efficient producer is the worker who owns his own business, we can predict that freeing up markets will realize a society in which virtually everyone is self-employed. That's a recognizably egalitarian vision, right? Everybody their own boss. Nobody taking orders from anybody else in the realm of production. And that was nearly achieved in colonial America. (laughs) Okay, 18th century America was a virtual egalitarian utopia. Of course, for white men only. (laughs) And it was built, of course, on uh, uh, the mass expropriation and ethnic cleansing of Native Americans. And slavery uh, of Africans and some Native Americans, but nevertheless, for white men, it was an egalitarian utopia. Here you can see uh, the GD coefficient uh, uh, for the American 13 American colonies leading to the United States. You can see America is way more equal in distribution of income. By the way, I should point out that this data even includes the consumption of the slave population. So even even throwing that in, America was still way more egalitarian uh, than England and Wales <coughs> and the Netherlands, and that didn't change until around the Civil War. Okay, so United States, you have an aristocracy, astonishingly high levels of, of self-employment, free white men. The reason for this was impossible to keep whites (coughs) in any system of involuntary servitude. It was just too easy for them to leave, right? So, endangered servitude, you just couldn't keep them. They'd just go out west, acquire some property, it was virtually free, farm for themselves. Nearly perfect competition, because all the units of production were really small and there were lots of them. And here we see the origins of libertarianism. In Tom Paine, Great American Revolutionary, you read The Rights of Man, part two, his great defense of the French Revolution, and it reads like a libertarian tract, okay? He's arguing for free trade, hard money, he's a gold standard guy, low taxes, a minimal state, the cause of poverty, he said, was oppressive taxation. Get rid of taxes. You won't have poverty anymore. <laughs> no, you don't want any regulation. Just let trade and free markets you know, run their, their course. So Tom Paine, almost every element of the libertarian political philosophy you can read in Paine. But Paine was not just libertarian. He was a radical egalitarian. Indeed, he was a hero of British labor radicals through 1848, through the end of Chartism. Okay, he was required reading. Okay, so we see libertarianism and egalitarian thinking tightly joined in this era. And indeed, they're tightly joined all the way up to Lincoln. So Lincoln, of course, a famous anti-slavery president, his stump speech uh, for his presidential campaign in 1860, He converted into an address to Congress when he assumed the president. Here you see a wonderful illustration of him as, right, a worker. Um, Lincoln's anti-slavery position was based not only on regard for the human rights of the slaves themselves. He was bringing a message to the United States generally that equality of opportunity for everyone, including whites, was predicated on the abolition of all forms of involuntary servitude. Because the free society of equals is one of universal self-employment. Sure, a worker starting off as a young person might have to work for wages for a little while, but then he'll be able to save enough money to buy a farm of his own or set up his own shop, be his own boss. And then in the just free labor system, he would then employ a couple of people only for a temporary position so that they could also save enough money and become self-employed themselves. That was the great promise of the Republican Party. It's why, in addition to being an anti-slavery party, they also uh, Pass the Homestead Act, go out west, be your own boss. Now this whole individualistic, libertarian version of egalitarian ended up getting shattered by the Industrial Revolution, (laughs) okay? And fundamentally, I think, there's a problem of scale, okay? You just had huge scale, massive agglomerations of capital, individual entrepreneurs, self-employed sole proprietors just couldn't compete with that model. So they go bankrupt and then they become wage laborers. And hence, at the very same time that we have the Industrial Revolution and the rise of a sort of 19th century style of of liberalism, we also see the rise of total institutions. Here's the panopticon, which was Bentham's famous model of a prison, which he also said was a great model for mental institutions, schools, Workhouses, poorhouses, factories, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so liberalism fundamentally changed its character. Okay, while liberals preached independence, freedom, and autonomy in polity and market, they preached order, routine, and subordination in factory, school, poorhouse, and prison. Okay, so effectively, what happened was that the industrial revolution reversed the implications of classical liberal ideas from the, from the 18th century. The labor regime turned from one of, you know, hopeful universal self-employment to wage slavery. Instead of the distribution of income and wealth moving from frontiers to workers, that direction reversed. Right now, right the rentiers, people got more money simply in virtue of owning property, not because they were working. <clears throat> 19th century liberals used the ideology of competition against combinations of labor, but looked the other way when it came to combinations of corporate capital, where multiple investors combine and become a single person under the auspices of the corporation. The rise of the ideology of shareholder capitalism reverse the original liberal ideas. Right. Locke, 90% labor theory of value. <laughs> right. Smith, labor theory of value. The source of all value is in labor, said Locke and Smith, great liberal theorists. Uh, but shareholder capital reverses that. The whole point of the corporation is to maximize the share that goes to passive property owners, not to the workers. And with respect to issues of governance or who orders who around, (coughs) Locke, of course, originated the idea that mere ownership of property does not entitle one to boss anyone else around. But by the 19th century with the factory system, ownership of the factory definitely did entitle the boss to order the workers around. So we have a complete reversal, okay? Classical liberal ideas, originally promising, free society of equals, ended up justifying social hierarchies of domination, unequal standing, and in their wake, unequal esteem. Okay. So, after the Industrial Revolution, the libertarian free market principle ended up supporting precisely what the original libertarians wanted to destroy, off retirement so let's take a look at state communism. This is sort of a large-scale egalitarian vision, okay? And here, I'm not even gonna look at Marx. In fact, Marx is completely unoriginal. Okay, the original ideology of state communism was created by Gracchus Babeuf, okay? In the French Revolution, okay? And his conspiracy of equals which is a real thing. He tried to overthrow the directory. Uh, it didn't work out so well for him. <laughs> He, he, he was given an opportunity to defend himself when he was put on trial for treason. Uh, and he gave an extended disquisition of his political program, so we know exactly what he was up to. Uh, it, uh, it, his idea was you needed strict distributive equality. Okay? Everyone gets exactly the same amount. Okay? And this would be enforced by abolishing private property, money, and markets a comprehensive centralized state administration of the economy. The state would assign everyone their job and distribute all goods from a common store. Okay, Everyone would just sort of produce and then they put everything into a common store and then the state would distribute <coughs> it. Okay, he also wanted to abolish any kind of esteem inequality. Uh, he was a great fan of Robespierre's Committee of Public Safety and the Terror. The uh, terror was there, in and Robespierre said, it's some, we're going to make virtuous citizens by terrorizing them into virtue." <laughs> you, know, you know, we've seen this. You know, we've seen this idea repeated through history. I mean, you see, like the Cultural Revolution under Mao, Pol Pot. Also, by the way, was strongly motivated by uh, the idea of the terror. He was actually a French student. You know, these students of the French Revolution—they're always constantly drawing the worst possible lessons from that event. Okay, uh, <clears throat> he recognized that in order to suppress esteemed competition, you needed comprehensive thought control and censorship because people really like to be well-regarded and better regarded than their neighbors, so you've got to suppress that. Um, another way to abolish esteemed competition is to give everyone plain uniforms. You can see now did that with the Mao uniforms, right? Everybody, same dress, and so nobody has fancy clothes. You abolish the arts and sciences, again, straight out of Rousseau, <laughs> right? Arts and sciences are just another way of corrupt people to kind of lord their like greater smarts over other people. <laughs> so you just get rid of it all, <laughs> right? Oh, abolish the family, yeah, you get that too, right? Yeah, in the first couple years, infants will be in their mother's arms, and then you rip them out, put them in state boarding schools, okay? Uh, <coughs> Paul Pot again. Right? <laughs> it's right there in Gracchus, Babak. Urban areas, cities, which of course in Europe had always been the air that breathes free in the cities, right? Ah, but that's not what Babak thought. No, that's the place where people gain the anonymity and consequently can like do their own thing and uh uh do all kinds of unvirtuous things. So uh you want to send it back to the country, just like now did, <laughs> right? <laughs> and Paul Pot, right? You break up the city, send it back to the country where they learn true virtue, modesty, humility. Right? Okay, it's all there. Okay. Uh, <coughs> well, as you might imagine, it's a self-defeating model. Okay, here we see a wonderful contemporary illustration of a soldier rescuing the French Constitution. This was the directory constitution from Bob's conspiracy. <coughs> he was executed. Um, <coughs> effectively, what Bob was saying is in order to create a society of equals, you need to model society on the army. Okay. That's the only way to get strict material equality and to eradicate competition completely. Okay? But the army is itself a massive hierarchy. (laughs) Okay? There's no way to achieve this without an extreme hierarchy of domination and subordination. You need a totalitarian state. Okay? So, a large-scale centralized model of egalitarianism is just self-defeating pretty much on its face. Because remember, to have a true egalitarian society, you have to tame all three types of hierarchy, subordination and domination, esteem and stigma, unequal standing. But his model didn't do that, right? You need totalitarianism to get his model going. So let's think about the small commune model. Okay? This seems to be the eternal return of egalitarianism. You look at the 17th century diggers, utopian socialists, Israeli kibbutznets, 1960s student radicals. They're constantly thinking, you know, to create a society of equals, the fundamental unit should be these little communes. Okay, uh, people are constantly returning to that vision, and perhaps maybe what is kind of like return to the original scale of human society. The scale of a commune is pretty similar to the scale of a hunter-gatherer band. Okay? Um, <coughs> now in the 19th century, uh, one reason for advocating communes was that it seemed to uh, promise escape from domination and the poverty of wage labor, you know, wage slavery, offer a more humane system in which within the commune people could be equals. Okay. But at the same time, the commune enabled uh, economies of scale scaled up from a sole proprietorship, so maybe they could compete with the big capitalist factories. But they're small enough still to enable everyone to participate in group decision-making, some kind of participatory democracy. And the commune could also uh, <coughs> establish distributing equality or at least a you know, distribution according to me. <coughs> And within the commune, people would be able to enforce social norms against esteemed competition. And this is widely observed in actual communes. The United States, again, uh, uh, the playing ground for communal experiments in living. So here you can see a bunch of them from Maine down to Texas. Uh, this was the, the United States was the true place where most of these experiments were taking place. Not so much Europe. It was really hard to get these kinds of experiments going in Europe. And you can see a whole bunch of different ones here in the nineteenth century. Here I just give approx. These are very approximate numbers here, so you give a sense. The Owenites, the Fourierists, Icarians, Shakers. I should stress that these different forms of communal life weren't just units of production, of course, they're also units of common living, and they engage in all kinds of other experimentation, too. There was experiments with um, polygamy, free love experiments, polyamory, no love experiments, like the Shakers, right? I mean, The Shakers, you know, they are all celibate, okay? So how could they reproduce themselves? They ran orphanages. That's how they reproduced themselves. Now, as you can see here, they didn't last for very long. Indeed, the Shakers lasted longest, and this should give us pause about the viability of this model. If you have to be celibate to really last two to 20 years. There's actually one Shaker commune that still exists today, it has three people. They're very elderly. I don't think that's going to continue. <laughs> okay? Turns out, it's a very unstable model. These things usually fall apart almost as soon as they're created, (coughs) or they last for a couple decades at most, except for those Shakers. They kind of—I think you need a very special motivation to live in a commune (laughs) for a long time. Okay, 20th century America. uh, There was a communal revival in the 1960s among student radicals. So we can take a look at how the students for a democratic society, imagine communal democracy to take place. They created a lot of student communes at the time. Right, you would have perfect equality. You'd minimize offices and roles and any powers of office. Nobody's bossing anybody else around. You rotate offices and so forth. Uh, They ran by consensus, right? You talk about problems until everyone agreed on what to do. Uh, these communes were based on strong norms of solidarity and friendship. And the students had intense commitments to a common cause, often dedicated to community organizing, organizing very poor communities to empower them to speak up for their rights. Okay. Now, all these communes also failed, or virtually all of them did. There's a few left, uh, but not very many. <clears throat> Why did they fail? Well, Robert Ellison points to the transaction costs of production under a communal form. There's lots of externalities in a communal form. There's lots of incentives to shirk and grab, shirk labor and grab more stuff for yourself. And hence, there's a, you have to do a lot of monitoring to make sure that the system still works. You gotta look, everybody's looking over everybody else's shoulders to make sure that they're not shirking labor, grabbing more for themselves. And hence, you need a lot of sanctioning Private property, you don't need that because all these externalities are internalized. You're not working hard, well, you're gonna have less production to consume at the end. So transaction cost analysis tends to move us to smaller family units, nuclear families, something like that. And indeed, this is what Ellison observed with the Mormons. They started off with communal farms, they moved out to Utah, one big commune, but they eventually agreed among themselves to split it up into private property. There are also transaction costs of decision-making. This is really a great illustration from uh, Miller's book, Democracies in the Streets. He quotes one of the leading SDS members, Sharon Jeffrey, freedom is an endless meeting. <laughs> right? Transaction costs of participatory democracy are spectacularly high. Right? <laughs> Just spending your whole time. He quotes a story in which one student commune, they're radicals, they're you know, organizing the poor and stuff, and they're exhausted, they're completely exhausted by this heavily intensive labor, and one summer day, it's really sunny, and they say, you know, maybe we could take one day off to go to the beach, but other people dissented, and they spent the entire sunny, beautiful day arguing over what to do, <laughs> but neither fulfilling their community organizing or getting some R&R on the beach. <laughs> okay. Uh, a third problem with communal failure is who's gonna do the dishes? Um, <clears throat> this is, this is uh, you know, who does the drudge work? It was a big problem for the SDS communes. It remains a problem today. Uh, my daughter, uh, uh, all through high school, was uh, a self-professed anarcho-communist. We'd have all these arguments over the dinner, dinner table and I'd say, look, this is like totally not feasible. She said, oh, We don't need markets, like everyone will just share. Like we'll be in little communes and we'll just, you know, use some app, phone app, (laughs) to kind of coordinate what everybody needs and, you know, we'll like barter or something. And I said, you know, this really, (laughs) you have a lot to learn. (laughs) Anyway, finally she, uh, we do have some cooperatives, some communes in Ann Arbor, and she befriended somebody who's a member of the commune and uh, he, he invited her over, just to sort of hang out one day. And so uh, she goes there, and she's like completely appalled. And she and I talked to her the next day, and she says, you know, Mom, I'm not an anarcho-communist anymore. And I said, what what made you change your mind? And she says, because I visited this Ann Arbor uh, commune, the kitchen was There was mold growing on every single dish and piece of silverware. (laughs) That's too disgusting. (laughs) Nobody wants to do the dredge work, and if nobody has authority over everyone else, how can you make them do the dredge work? It just doesn't get done. Okay. But I think there's actually a more profound cause of commune failure. hypothesis. Now, I haven't completed my research on the communal form, uh, but if Bohm is right about the, 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 the nature of the egalitarian impulse, what makes people seek a society of equals, it's deeply individualistic, okay? We don't want other people ordering us around, okay? And if that's really, if it's that quest for personal autonomy that's driving us, then I think that will predict individual exit from small group control wherever it's viable. Okay, that is, people are going to get more autonomy in an individual household or a small nuclear, you know, family than they will if you have to coordinate all your personal decisions with a larger group the size of. A the people are going to drive to a smaller unit. Okay, because of, mm-hmm. <clears throat> so my hypothesis is <coughs> there are some communes that last. Not a whole lot. They have a high failure rate. But my hypothesis is that when you if you find a stable commune, it's probably going to be because either there are very steep exit costs, okay, the people inside are going to find it really, really costly to escape. Or the Commune's gonna be authoritarian, (laughs) in which case it's not gonna be a model for egalitarianism. Or the stability of the Commune is gonna rest on other motives, like a Shakers' super, super intensive religious motivation. Or maybe friendship or solidarity or something other than a, a, a purely egalitarian impulse. isn't it (laughs) okay so what lessons can we draw one thing is it's very important to consider the interactions of these three egalitarian concerns okay because sometimes if you get if you try to pursue too much equality of standing like distributed equality and equality of esteem it's going to require massive hierarchies of domination and subordination to achieve right So we're going to have to think about the interactions of these two things and not just focus on one form of uh, equality. Another lesson is that free market individualism, the libertarian picture, it was a genuine egalitarian view. It had a lot of promise before the Industrial Revolution. But once you get huge economies of scale and production, there's an issue that the libertarians are missing out on. And that's relations of domination and subordination in the workplace, okay? And they they don't really give us good tools for thinking about that and dealing with it. (coughs) The failure of, say, communism, I think, highlights the tension between equality of esteem and standing on the one hand and equality of authority on the other. Requires, essentially, a totalitarian state to completely eradicate inequalities of esteem and standing. And the failure of the small communal model, I think, both points to the high transaction costs of participatory democracy. And also, I think, at its heart, a tension with the underlying egalitarian motive. Okay? That nobody can oneself around. <clears throat> okay? And so... Uh, I think that's why we're we're ending up with this fourth vision, which I haven't really talked about, but which I think uh, uh, is really an inevitable. Why why don't you sort of think through the logic of the more simple pictures? Uh, Consideration of economies of scale and transaction costs will lead us to favor certain large-scale, especially productive enterprises. Uh, uh, And then you need multi-level administrative hierarchies to get those large-scale units going. It's kind of inescapable in modern, prosperous societies. It also means that the quest for uh, autonomy and non-domination, which is at the heart of egalitarianism, means that this is only society of equals worth the name is a free society of equals. Right? Freedom and equality are tightly joined ideals on this view, they're not in opposition. our lesson is small is beautiful is not always vindicated, it's the eternal appeal. Okay, but there's reasons why it doesn't always work. And consequently we're stuck with a really messy problem of a political economy where we have <clears throat> organizational scales that are needed in order to solve different different problems. Okay, Nuclear families, productive enterprises, large scale states, lots of different scales are needed to solve all the problems we need to do. And constantly we have this very messy problem because once you get large scale enough, you can't, democracy is not viable. You have to go to some kind of, in order to achieve a free society of equals, you need some kind of representative democracy. Okay. and then we have all the problems of democratic theory, right? That we have to work out about how to achieve that. How to achieve a successful representative democratic form for larger scale units, which can still keep a lid on the bullies and the narcissists among us. A big problem that America is facing in the current presidential, Okay, I'll leave
0: you there. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this talk, did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine. ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.